Pantry Studio Production. The following may contain strong language and deals with adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. It was a box office hit back in 2001. The horror movie Jeepers Creepers had audiences captivated with a very simple story. It was about a brother and sister on a road trip who happened to cross paths with a bloodthirsty demonic maniac known as the Creeper. Now, a lot of people didn't have high expectations for the film because it was low budget and there was no star power. And it was released at the end of summer. So what everyone thought would be a flop turned into a hit. Jeepers Creepers made a star out of Justin Long and made a success out of director Victor Salva. And with a record-breaking box office, it made Labor Day weekend into a prime spot for launching scary flicks. It did so well they released a third movie in the series back in 2017 and there are still even talks to either revamp or continue the series. Now, it's true that this is an exhilarating and downright scary story. Fans, though, may be surprised to learn that the story itself might not be completely rooted in fantasy. No, the Creeper had a lot going for him, there's no doubt. He could incorporate the body parts of his victims into his own physiology, making him functionally unkillable. At least, for as long as there was some spare guts laying around somewhere. And he had giant bat wings, which implied that, at some point, he stole the bits off of Gargoyle's action figures. Most importantly, he had something that most animalistic hellspawn from the dawn of time don't seem too inclined to pursue. A functioning understanding of the rules of the road. So was this grounded in fiction? Well, maybe... Then again, maybe not. These are the Mountain Mysteries, and this is episode number 33, Rage, the Mountain Mystery of Dennis DePew. I will be the last to fall. I won't shed a tear for them to see. There are over 1.9 billion square acres in the United States alone, and 24% of those are mountainous. The secrets that these regions hold are enormous. Reports of mysterious creatures, strange sightings and sounds, ghosts and murders, and those who have seemingly vanished. They are questions that need asking and answers worth finding. These are the Mountain Mysteries. Here's Chris Sloan.
please support us on Patreon or definitely share the stories of the Mountain Mysteries, all these episodes. And don't forget to visit us on our website at www.themountainmysteriespodcast.com. You can do a world of good and help us even more just by doing that. This episode is dedicated to the endearing memory of a man who was like a brother to me and us here at the Mountain Mysteries. Floyd County Sheriff's Deputy Oliver Ollie Little. Never forgotten. We love you, brother. Eleven years before the movie Jeepers Creepers was even talked about, fugitive Dennis DePew was on the run, being hunted by the police, after the body of his wife Marilyn was found discarded behind a church. An episode of Unsolved Mysteries aired the true story of the brutal murder of Marilyn DePew almost a year after her death. The opening scene in the movie in which the creeper is spotted by a pair of siblings out for a drive and reacts by menacingly following them in a van? Well, that's distinctly akin to the Unsolved Mysteries reenactment. A comparison video of the two scenes is available on YouTube. It's interesting to think about how closely the events of Jeepers Creepers equal the real-life Depew case, and it's even more interesting that it seemingly took so long for anyone to connect the dots regarding the true story that more than likely inspired the movie. Well, let's go back and begin where it all started. It was on an Easter Sunday, April 15th, 1990. It was along one of those winding, lonely roads that call out for miles, 12 miles as a matter of fact, outside of Coldwater, Michigan. Ray and Marie Thornton set off on a leisurely drive in the country, as they did every weekend. Oh, they had no idea what they were about to encounter would stay with them forever. It was just a matter of minutes. Their routine Sunday outing would place this ordinary, law-abiding couple at the center of a strange and ominous mystery. As they drove south on Snow Prairie Road, from out of nowhere, seemingly, a van sped up behind them and then passed them. One of the games that they would play while driving was making names out of the license plates. Marie noticed that the van's license plate began with a GZ. So she came up with G's. He's really in a hurry. Well, the opening sequence of Jeepers Creepers was directly lifted from the episode right down to the specific shots and dialogue exchanges. Like the Thorntons, the brother and sister in the film even passed the time by playing the very same license plate game, making the inspiration undeniable. Well, it was several miles down the road. The Thorntons came across a van and its driver a second time. As they approached an old schoolhouse, Marie saw a man walking behind it with a bloody blanket. As they passed the school, she noticed the van parked between the building and a large tank. 
Minutes later, the van pulled up behind them again and rode their bumper for almost two miles. The Thornton's game helped Marie remember the first two letters of the van's license plate, which she wrote down on a piece of paper. Finally, Ray turned off the highway, and when he did, the van pulled to the side of the road. Well, they then decided to turn around and come back in an attempt to get a full license plate number. Well, as they approached, they noticed that the man was changing his license plate. Marie also noticed that the front passenger door was covered with blood. Fearing the worst, the Thorntons returned to the schoolhouse to search for the bloody blanket. Well, they found it partially stuffed into a small animal hole. They immediately went and contacted police. Well, otherwise, it was a pleasant spring afternoon. Until all of this happened. Then they had chanced upon evidence of a shocking crime, a crime which marked the complete and tragic disintegration of an entire family. They witnessed the final chapter of a bitter, heated conflict between a husband and wife which ended in murder. To all outward appearances, 46-year-old Dennis DePew and his 48-year-old wife Marilyn of Coldwater had a comfortable middle-class life, nice home, vehicles, decent jobs. Both had gratifying careers. As a matter of fact, he was a Michigan property assessor, and she, well, she was a high school counselor at the Coldwater School Systems. Together, they were raising three healthy kids, but beneath the surface, smoldering tensions threatened to erupt at any moment. After the children were born, Dennis grew sullen and withdrawn, kept to himself most days. He began to isolate himself further and further from the family and accused Marilyn of turning the children against him. The diffused daughter Julie recalled that they did not fight with each other. As a matter of fact, they rarely talked to each other at all. Marilyn told her co-worker, Ann Dunkel, that she was unhappy with her marriage. Maybe it was time to move on. Marilyn had confided in friends that Dennis was a bully. In 1989, after 18 years of it, she finally gave up and filed for divorce. When she was asked why she wanted to get that divorce, she said that the marriage was already broken. She told her lawyer, Richard Colbeck, that she wanted to be more of her own person, raising her family as she saw fit. She felt that Dennis was trying to domineer her, run her life right into the ground, and not allow her to make decisions that she wanted to make. Dennis agreed to let her have primary custody of the kids. But regarding their property? Well, Dennis was willing and even offered Marilyn whatever she wanted from the settlement. Even so, there were underlying issues that their children had picked up on. Despite Dennis's attempt to keep the marriage intact, the divorce became final in December of 1989. Well, he was granted bi-weekly visitation rights, but the kids were often... Very reluctant to spend time with him. Wanted nothing to do with him. Too mean and grumpy. Well, so they said. He was also granted access to the guest house, which he used both as an office and an excuse to maintain control over his family. After the divorce, Marilyn changed all the locks on the house's doors. But even though she had done that, one day she came home and found him sitting on the couch. She had no idea how he got in because he didn't have access to the new keys for the doors. She told Anne that she was frightened about that. Then, one day passes, and then the next. And out of the blue, 
Dennis indicated to his co-worker, Jan Markowski, that he was contemplating suicide and murder. It was Easter Sunday, 1990, that Dennis arrived to pick up two of the kids for a visit. Julie had already refused to go with him, didn't want any part of it. Their son Scott asked to stay a bit longer, as he wanted to spend Easter with his mom, too. Dennis became angry. Reports say that he started arguing with his kids when Marilyn got between them. Marilyn and Dennis then got into an argument in which he blamed her for ruining his life and turning his kids against him. He then pushed her down the hallway and began to hit her as their kids pleaded with him to stop. Oh, but that wasn't going to happen, apparently. After that, he then pushed her down the stairs and she fell onto a landing. He went to her and began to hit her more as their kids looked on. In shock. Their oldest daughter, Jennifer, ran to a neighbor's house to call the sheriff's office. At the same time, Dennis took a severely injured Marilyn up the stairs. Although he eventually dragged her out to his van as Jennifer was coming back, he told the kids that he was going to take her to the hospital. Julie noticed that she was not walking on her own. When Julie called out to her, she did not respond, appearing to be in a daze. The Depews never arrived at the hospital. Well, sheriff's deputies went to meet the couple at the hospital. When they didn't arrive, the deputies and the Michigan State Police immediately began a search for them. It was on that same afternoon the Thorntons witnessed Dennis's strange activities and found the bloody blanket in the backyard of a schoolhouse. When the Thorntons saw Dennis by the school, he was disposing of the sheet that he'd used to transport Marilyn's dead body in. The animal hole that he had tried to push the sheet down wasn't large enough, and when Ray and Marie went back to see what Dennis had been up to. They found it sticking out of the ground. While dumping his wife's body, Depew assumed that he was alone, since it was rare for anyone to drive along this particular isolated Michigan back road where he was located. Well, as happenstance would have it, Ray and Marie were driving along that particular stretch of isolation. At the very moment, they found themselves bearing witness to Dennis disposing of Marilyn's corpse behind a church. Her body was wrapped in a bloody blanket. Before they could fully comprehend what was going on, Dennis was in his van, following close behind them for several miles and then disappearing completely until March of 1991. When we come back, a highway worker makes a shocking discovery and a manhunt begins on the Mountain Mysteries. It's where true crime meets the paranormal. Don't miss an episode of The Mountain Mysteries, featuring cases of the missing, murdered, and the unexplained all across the mountainous regions of the world. And tune in to The Mountain Mysteries gatherings on Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube each Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Visit us at home at themountainmysteriespodcast.com. The Mountain Mysteries. Learn what all the talk is about. Available on Spotify, Apple, and where podcasts are found. Stay mysterious. Did you know that one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer? 2020 has been a powerful reminder that we're all in this together. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. A reminder that all year, every year, we should be talking about the importance of early detection. Early detection saves lives. 911, where's the emergency? I'd like a pizza for delivery. 
Ma'am, you've reached 911. This is an emergency line. Uh, large with half pepperoni, half mushroom. Do you have an emergency or not? Yes. And you're unable to talk because... Right, right. Ma'am, is there someone in the room with you? Yes. Okay, I've sent an officer. Can you stay on the phone with me? No. Uh, see you soon. Thank you. October is Domestic Violence Month. And when it's tough for someone to talk, it's time for us to listen. A public service announcement brought to you by the Pantry Studios and the Mountain Mysteries. When it comes to domestic violence, never stay mysterious. After Dennis DePue dumped his wife's body behind a church on a Michigan back road, the area was quickly cordoned off. The authorities began to think the worst. Marilyn was probably dead. The bloody blanket used to wrap her up was found in a school. While the police discovered several fresh tire tracks and a large pool of blood at the scene, the tracks were later matched to Dennis's van, and the blood was in fact Marilyn's. As the sun rose and the day labored on and marched into night, thoughts turned to worry over Marilyn, a fear that would be justified as the next day a highway worker discovered her body just off a deserted road behind a church in the Bethel Township. A small, quiet, and unassuming place. It was midway between the schoolhouse and Marilyn's home. Investigators found that she had been shot once in the back of the head. Who would do this? Oh. Well, there was little doubt in the minds of veteran detectives, and Dennis DePue went on the run. Just days later, Dennis sent a series of wild, rambling letters to friends and relatives in which he tried, albeit callously, to rationalize her death. To Jan, he wrote, Marilyn had many, many opportunities to treat me fairly during this divorce, but she chose to string it out, trick me, lie to me, and when you lose your wife, children, and home, well, there's just not much left. I was too old to start over. Altogether, Dennis sent a total of 17 letters postmarked in Virginia, Iowa, and Oklahoma. Based on the letters, Ann felt that he was trying to say that Marilyn's friends were the ones that caused her death, even though it was he, and he alone, that was the one that pulled the trigger. Marilyn's parents felt that the only closure they could ever get regarding her loss would be to have Dennis caught. Well, as it happens, hours turned into days days turned into weeks, and things began to look even more grim, if that were even possible. They knew who did this. Well, hell, everyone knew who did it. And then, after three months, Dennis sent copies of a 13-page letter to a number of friends and relatives, and it read like the thesis of a maniac. It was a chilling 5,000-word rationalization of the murder, which quotes profusely from the Bible throughout, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a lie for a lie, a life for a life. I realize that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, but sometimes the Lord's busy doing other things, so Dennis wrote. And it also contained more rambling than a squirrel has nuts from Dennis. Odd? Oh, you bet. There was another parallel from that Creeper film in which, in the movie, the demonic killer would get rid of his victims behind this old abandoned church. Likewise, Dennis first attempted to dispose of his victim 
at an abandoned schoolhouse before apparently moving her about five miles closer to home near an abandoned church. Now, you remember the TV series Unsolved Mysteries? Well, okay. They aired an episode of Dennis the Pugh's crime in March of 1991, nearly a year after the murder. The night the episode aired, Mary, who was his then-girlfriend, got home in Dallas, Texas, and she was surprised to see her boyfriend's vehicle sitting in the driveway. Now, at that time, Dennis was going by the name of Hank Queen. His van, yes, a van, was parked in the driveway, which was out of the ordinary because he usually kept it inside the garage. When she came inside, he told her that his mother was very ill and that he needed to make an emergency trip home. He told Mary that his mother had a stroke, and he asked her to make him some sandwiches for the trip so he could go assist her. She felt that something was going on, something odd, but she wasn't sure of what that was. Kept quiet about her intuition as he gathered up his clothes and some personal items. She went to work making the sandwiches after he gave her instructions on preparing the food for the trip. Well, after getting together his belongings and throwing them in the van, he gave her a small kiss and said goodbye. She said she knew something was troubling him. She had this feeling, a gut instinct deep inside of her that screamed, and she knew that she would never see him again. Turns out the television was on that night that Mary was making those sandwiches, of course, like many of us do when we're busy with some kind of domesticated chores. We pay little attention to it. It's noise in the background. Well, Dennis didn't want her to see that episode, but he knew if he turned the TV off, that would be just a little bit too odd and spark her attention. Later that night, Mary was shocked to learn that Hank was actually Dennis the Pew and that he had just been featured on the broadcast. She believes that he was watching the show and deliberately kept her distracted in the kitchen with food and drinks so that she would not see the Unsolved Mysteries edition, which was all about him. Mary, not knowing, could give him a smoother leave. Interestingly, she had been suspicious of him in the past, asking a private investigator to look into him. But at that time, nothing was found about him. One of Mary's friends called the telecenter and provided authorities with a Texas license plate number of Dennis's van. Four hours later, his life came to a violent end just across the Louisiana-Mississippi state border. When Louisiana state troopers spotted Dennis's van, they tried to pull him over. Oh, but Dennis had no intention on going quietly. That's when he led police on a 15-mile high-speed chase and broke through two police barricades. Warren County, Mississippi Sheriff Paul Barrett told his deputies that if that van refused to stop, shoot the front tires out from under it. Barrett said Mississippi authorities were alerted by Louisiana officials around a quarter past three in the morning that they were in pursuit of a van with a stolen Texas tag and said the driver of the van absolutely refused any kind of police orders to stop. So, Barrett said that they set up a roadblock with police and deputies at the end of Interstate 20, that bridge that just crosses over Mississippi. He said that he told them, don't shoot him, but shoot out the tires on the van. Well, it was around then that the officers were waiting on this guy to show up in the van. His office was informed by the Federal Bureau of Investigation that the driver of the vehicle was wanted for murder. Then, according to the sheriff, Depew managed to drive right through the roadblock, but officers managed to shoot out a tire. Then they shot out another tire and they just kept going. 
He said the van turned off the interstate and sped down several Vicksburg streets with officers close behind. Rammed one police car with his van, then rammed another one of the deputy's cars, according to Barrett. And Barrett said that it was at that point he fired two shots through the windshield at Deputy Sheriff Bubba Comans, then fired one or more shots out of the van's side window at police officer Mark Morgan. Well, you can imagine what these guys are thinking now. This guy needs to die. A lot. By that time, I was within a quarter of a mile of the van after hearing that he was shooting at us, and I told him, take him out. That was Sheriff Barrett that said that. Then the sheriff said that he pulled up behind the van and fired his gun into the rear of the vehicle, and other officers exchanged to fire with the driver. Dennis traveled about a half mile before his van came to a stop. Well, the van was full of clothes and boxes and, well, the bullets from the officers. But they were not getting to him. Sheriff Barrett said that an officer rushed the van when the shooting stopped and opened the driver's side door only to find Depew dead, with a three fifty seven in his left hand and his thumb on the trigger. Around 4 o'clock that morning, he turned the gun on himself and took his own life. Paul believes that he intended to die that night, either by the deputies or by his own hand, either way. But he was found slumped behind the wheel of his van right around 4 o'clock in the morning, only moments before he had fired a three fifty-seven caliber magnum at Warren County Sheriff's deputies and Vicksburg police officers during a chase that began in Louisiana. Sheriff Barrett had said that he and his wife had watched the TV program about him, and the next morning, he and other officers were firing into his van. Sheriff Barrett continued to state, quote, I'd say that's not going to happen every day, end quote. Dennis was the first fugitive featured on the broadcast to have committed suicide. He did this only hours after his case was featured on a nationally televised crime program. His eye for an eye rambling did at least seem to come true in this respect. Dennis DePew's case was also featured on the ID show, Man with a Van, in March of 2020, which is a true crime documentary series focusing on cases in which van drivers use their vehicles to help them commit their heinous crimes and how vans have played a crucial part in identifying the perpetrators. Well, the alleged schoolhouse where the Thorntons saw Dennis with a bloody sheet was also the location of arson in 2017. Not a lot of information about the Depew children, but reports say that they were able to move to Florida and live with their maternal grandparents. Marilyn's parents have since passed away. Dennis Depew was buried at Eagle Cemetery in LaGrange County, Indiana, quite a long way from his wife's final resting place in Oakland County, Michigan. As for the original Unsolved Mysteries segment that seemingly inspired the opening scene of Jeepers Creepers, Victor Salva has never mentioned it as an inspiration for the film, but he has credited the Steven Spielberg movie Duel as an influence, but has reportedly never mentioned Depew or Unsolved Mysteries. Salva said it's a complete fiction, but many people believe the comparisons can simply speak for themselves. Make sure to join us online Thursday nights at 8 o'clock on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch for the Mountain Mysteries Gatherings. Don't forget the chills. An exclusive presentation of the Mountain Mysteries will continue to air Thursdays at 6 p.m. for the month of October. And if you're a Patreon subscriber, well, you'll be getting those Mondays at 6 p.m. 
I'm Chris Lone for the Mountain Mysteries, the Mountain Mysteries Blurs, and the Mountain Mysteries Gatherings. Stay mysterious. If you enjoy the Mountain Mysteries, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. That helps us so much. You can also help support the Mountain Mysteries by visiting our sponsors, whose links are below, or by donating at Patreon or the PayPal link shown in the notes. Patreon subscribers will receive early commercial-free episodes and more. Okay, so that's a wrap. Hi. You know who I am. Don't need to say it again. This episode was dedicated to somebody who was not just a friend to me. He was a brother. His name was Oliver Little. He was a Floyd County Sheriff's Deputy in Kentucky. He had spent his entire life serving others. And you'll forgive me if I get a little stumbled here because this is not scripted. This is just me speaking straight from the heart. But Ollie meant a lot to a lot of people. He was one of those guys that always had a smile on his face unless the circumstances of a situation dictated something different. He had a positive outlook on life, and he made other people feel special. Maybe, and I don't think this is an overuse of the word, magical or important. When I got word that he was gone, I was somewhere between shock, anger, disbelief. I knew he had been in a hospital. But you have to realize Ollie was an extremely healthy individual, a very strong guy. Uh, He had to be to serve in a capacity uh, concerning his employment. He, He had to be strong mentally, physically, emotionally. But he never took that to an extreme. He was always very kind. He tried to administer his duties with a sense of compassion. I always listened to what people had to say, but maybe that's what made him so special. He was the kind of person that people wanted to be around. He was the kind of guy that I wanted to be more like. I don't think that I've ever been so deeply touched by the soul of another human being for as much as I was him. I don't think 
that I'll ever encounter anyone else quite like him. Rest in peace, Holly. Brother, we all love you. <laughs>